Welcome to the Wokademia podcast. This is our inaugural episode with John Cochran. Before we get started, the university has asked us to do land acknowledgements before all public events. We're not quite required yet, but they ask. I don't actually buy into our land acknowledgements. So I just want to say that uh, personally, I fully accept the legitimacy of the state of Texas and its sovereignty over all lands from the Rio Grande to the north bank of the Red River and all its impoundments. So with that out of the way, because apparently we're all supposed to weigh in on this stuff now. I don't know why I'm a finance professor, but with that out of the way, I wanna welcome uh, John Cochran. He's a prominent financial economist. He spent most of his career at the University of Chicago before moving to the Hoover Institution. Um, internally within financial economics, he's known for many, many things that uh, it's probably too hard to pick out uh, the one most important. Uh, but you know, from a policy perspective, externally, you may know him from the Grumpy Economist. That's a very popular blog, which combines economics, analysis of economics, and general commentary, uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, and he's recently turned his attention a bit to the questions of academic freedom, free speech, and the state of universities. Although I'd say he's always kind of been a bit of an academic dissident, even at the sort of top of the uh, profession. So we're very happy to have. John here. And the purpose of this is we're, uh, our, our hope with this series is to try to get at the shift of focus of universities from teaching and research to a particular political ad, um, type of political advocacy. And I want to get a perspective from the inside. There are those of us who've been at universities for a while who may have some perspective that these external people like who are observing the effects of what we've done to ourselves and to the youth of America may not understand. So that's why I want to talk to academics who are interested in this. So I'll just start off. First question, John, what the hell happened? How did we get here? And why are universities like this now? You've been do doing this longer than I have. So maybe you have some <laughs> ideas. Uh, well, you'll start start with the easy ones. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so a, a very, uh, a, a by, by the standards of sort of the American distribution of political opinions, a, a very far left-wing group took over universities. And outsiders may not realize quite what a political monoculture universities have become. The, you know, the numbers on Democrat versus Republican, um, uh, you, you can see voter registrations, donations, stuff like that. You know, it's in the 99 to ones <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and even, uh, you know, standard liberal Democrats are sort of under fire at, at universities right now. Uh, this has been going on a long time, uh, certainly in the 1960s, uh, universities started going this way. And not just the liberalism, which is fine, I'm all for different political opinions, but the intolerance, uh, the um, we're not here to debate, we are here to squash dissenting views. Uh, and that certainly started in the late 1960s, and is that's really the the defining character of it, the, the Maoism, if you will, uh, of the movement. Um, which when you uh, say Maoism, you're not being sort of hyperbolic and rhetorical. No, the, the, the techniques of you must speak the right things, or or we're going to squash you. Maybe that's that's probably uh, I, I should take back the Maoism. Um, oh, really? I I think that. I mean, well, uh, we, really? I, I dislike hyperbole. So, uh, you know, you, you, if you're uh, if people find out you registered Republican, you can be called a Nazi. So 
I shouldn't, uh, let's not do the same rhetorical uh, extrapolation. The Maoists actually killed people. <laughs> and well, they they did, but, million. We're not killing people uh, at, at university campuses. But like, the cultural revolution didn't start with killing people. It started with students yelling at faculty in these struggle sessions. And you know, it, it might just yeah. be a sort of dynamic issue here. And I mean, I think it would be fair to say there are plenty of departments at universities where you would be more likely to find a literal Mao supporter than a Trump supporter, right? Oh my gosh, yes. I, so I, it's really, I mean, I, I'm going to push back a little on the hyperbole. Especially out of the closet. Uh, uh, but let, let's, let's, let's not indulge in the left's rhetoric and, and go with the hyperbole. But uh, certainly sort of, uh, you know, our group's going to take over and get rid of your group uh, kind of politics uh, has been going on in universities for, for quite a while. But I mean, I've, not too many years ago, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to just let's let's get the history of it. So it it certainly starts among uh, faculty, uh, where um, people of and not just people of of conservative political opinion, but um, you know you, you don't see uh, military veterans on campus anymore. You don't see uh, religious people. Uh, you know they're they're not uh, welcome in that campus culture either. Um, now it's becoming institutionalized, and actually so. You know, crazy things from English professors is not a, a force that I'm particularly worried about. Uh, they are they are crashing in their enrollments. Students are voting with their feet. Um, so if if they but, don't, if but they, they have a lot of little ways to add things to class, uh, add requirements to make sure you have to at least get. Yeah, get, I don't think you can get through the. Maybe it's different at Stanford, but at the University of Texas, I don't think you can get through and get a degree without at some point having to express a leftist view in your yeah. course words, right? That's so, right. And that's where I think the, the largest danger though is, is right now, just to complete the cycle of things, it's becoming institutionalized. There is a whole bureaucracy. The, the DEI bureaucracy is now in charge. Now their jobs, they know they have to enforce this stuff to keep their jobs and they're ever expanding uh, payrolls. So they are now uh, enforcing Forced not, not not just silencing conservatives, but forcing speech uh, on on people, um, and enforcing political litmus tests for getting hired, getting fired, and and so forth. This is spreading now also to the uh, agencies that grant funding. So I, I think the institutionalization of this of allegiance to a particular pretty extreme political ideology is that that's the part of it that is, I think, the most uh, troublesome as far as the institutions go. Now, there are also beginning to be the, the I think we're starting to have the have you no decency uh, moment uh, that people are beginning to speak out against it. But so you asked for, that's kind of the brief arc of history of where we are. Right, I did wanna like, I'm sorry, I'm stuck on the Maoist thing. Like, um, I know you, you probably, maybe we have to edit this whole thing out, but. Like, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, you talked about the institutionalization, but the actual use of violence is not unheard of on campuses now. I mean, I, I imagine you remember the, the Charles Murray incident not too many years ago where they actually sent a faculty member to the hospital for hosting a speaker it wasn't agreed with. And I don't recall much like, you know, people, you know, blogs we read got real upset about that, but I don't recall much general tone from universities saying, oh my gosh, this is totally unacceptable. We can't have violent mobs shut. It, it, everyone seemed pretty much totally okay with, you know, violent mobs trying to prevent speakers, right? So 
we do have some- on the other side um you know a sideways glance or a, a wrong word is is uh considered violence or now the new the new motto silence is violence wow that's a <laughs> yeah we got that silence is not an option we're supposed to sign petitions our dean basically said if you don't sign this you're a bad person and we're going to put a list of everyone who signed it so she was going to dox everybody at the school who didn't support a certain petition um yeah so that and it has something and so there's I don't want to say it's, it has something in common with the Maoist ideology, with uh, with what the Bolsheviks were doing. That there's the in-group, there's the out-group, there's, there's demonizing um, the out-group, there's forcing people to say completely ridiculous things. And there's this paranoid mentality. Uh, you know, if, if you were to listen to our, our administrators, there's, there's groups of white supremacists roaming around campus, threatening violence to everybody left and right. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, the, the the I mean, you're so you're trying to scrupulously avoid hyperbole, but then clearly they're they're sort of taking it to remarkable um, yeah. extremes. I do wonder well, the, part of the part of the way this kind of movement goes is Orwellian language, and so you have to constantly redefine your terms and use the right words, uh, and the right words are usually exactly the opposite of their literal English meanings. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is not all part of it. Silence, in fact, is not violence. No, yeah, so like, when you say silence is violence, you are asserting something that is complete nonsense in the literal English words. And right. Then, and that, but that seems to get back a little bit to the sort of postmodern roots of some of this, right? Like, you know, th- this movement seems to have this idea that there is no, you know, it's impossible to know objective truth. So language games are fine. On the other hand, they also are sort of sole possession of the truth. So that, do you get that impression? Like, I, I've never been able to quite reconcile those two factors of this. That is an, another interesting tension in the uh, far left wing movement. Yeah. Um, but but um, again, the the silliness of it wouldn't be so much of a problem if it wasn't. Uh, this is an organized movement for the taking of power and the and the silencing and and removal of dissent. Uh, and uh, so I, I completely defend anyone's rights to say the silliest things they want to. Uh, but it's uh, it's forcing people who disagree to be quiet or to leave the profession that's that. And that is, um, uh, you know, one of the saddest things is how this is destroying what should be useful professions. Uh, history, for example, I, I know from my colleague, Neil Ferguson, what's going on with history. Smart kids are not going into history anymore because the whole field has been destroyed by this sort of thing. You can't, uh, you cannot do um, facts and places history anymore. Well, that's sad. Too bad. So much for history. Yeah, and it's, it's the, the history is particularly strict because enrollments are dropping. You know, they have to force you to take history classes now because no one wants to take history classes. The moment someone showed up and taught a sort of old school diplomatic history or military history class, they would have enrollments out their ears, but you're not, there's no way you could teach that. And I do- Well, because you can't, you can't get a job if you do. Right, you'll never get a job. So that's where I wonder, like, I'm a little bit concerned on the sort of academic freedom stuff. Like there's, there's a bit of a movement now to say, all right, we really need to go back to having academic freedom on campus. Even if that movement succeeds, will it do us any good? I mean, is it too late? for academic freedom because all the personnel, like everyone in the history department wants to silence any dissenting views. If you have a policy that says, no, in the history department, 
you can say what you want and really who's going to enforce that? Like, what's the chances that someone will, that you'll ever find anyone who actually express a dissenting view? Is it, is it too late for academic freedom? Well, I do sense these, at least at the, the ones I know, there is a tension between the uh, extreme woke millennials and the Woodstock liberals who, uh, bless their hearts, still believe, they believe in some uh, academic freedom, but they, they are, you know, most departments have political litmus tests where, uh, you know, if you can, if you found out that, uh, you know, you're, you're, God forbid, a Trump supporter, then you simply won't won't get hired. So you're right. But, uh, you know, as an economist, I always hope for for new institutions and competition. So those particular uh, departments may die off, but, um, you know, new ones get created. Now that, that's a slow process in universities. Yeah. And I've, I've, so in our attempts to create new units where you could have sort of autonomy and independence, the first thing that happens is they try, like any hint of autonomy when you try to build something like that gets immediately crushed. Like we've had, you know, we were trying to do something like this with the Liberty Institute here. And the first thing they come at is, well, you've got to have your DEI representative and the DEI representative needs to have actual power. Like every faculty meeting, someone from a grievance studies department is coming at us saying, no, you must have, and they won't even let the thing come into existence, but conditional on it coming into existence, the hiring needs to be controlled by the DEI people. So I don't, well, then you're, you're, you're seeing why the institutionalization of this in a DEI bureaucracy is what's particular, and a bureaucracy that knows it needs to keep its jobs is uh, what, what is particularly troubling and it, because it stops institutional reform. So you may have to start your center outside the university structure or, you know, the University of Austin uh, right. they come and, and clean your clocks. <laughs> yeah, if they can avoid having their building further vandalized or worse. Well, I think their big problem is not going to be mobs in the streets. The big problem is always the bureaucracy. They have to compete with a subsidized alternative. They're not going to take federal money. And um, they're going to have to get accredited. And they're going to have to face boycotts of their students and uh, all the other yeah, the mechanisms in the way. The platform problem there, especially when you know, we've already kind of rotted out the leadership of all the firms that should be hiring people and they're all prepared to, I, you know, I'm sure you, you'll have to, you know, a University of Austin degree will be toxic to some people, but great to others. And that, you know, that's a tricky platform. Well, there to be fair to that, they are trying very hard to be uh, not political, to be the free speech university, not the uh, conservative university. So let's, uh, let's hope they work. <laughs> we'll see. I hope, I, I hope, but, but it, again, there's a lot of installed capital and a lot of legacy. Like we have all these buildings. You know, are we really going to just write off these billions and billions of dollars of investment and just say, okay, yeah, the, the people who want to you know, dismantle society, get all of that. And we're going to start with this $10 million, $20, $250 million thing. Is that the answer? or We're in a very non-competitive business because we're, protect, we're non-profits, which protect us from the market for corporate control. <laughs> we are uh, subsidized by the government uh, to a large extent. Surprise, surprise that so much research comes out saying how wonderful the government is. Uh, yeah, it's great when the Fed runs macro research. That's uh, a problem in my field. Uh, yep. And uh, that makes it very hard to have this kind of, hard and, and political to have this kind of institutional change. Right. So this, I guess, is jumping ahead a little bit of where I thought we'd be 
going, but I did want to push again on the institutional change. Like what, what could we do at institutions or what, you know, I'm in Texas in principle, the people who fund and run this university ought to want something other than what we have. Uh, but we've seen, what are our options? I think like Stanford is kind of run by these sort of tech oligopoly or tech monopolists who've won these network effect lotteries. And they're sort of the worst types who, you know, you, you sow racial division to hide the fact that they're like engaged in ridiculous antitrust violations to sort of suck all the wealth out of society. But, you know, oh, well, we're going to make you hate the, the working class. So that seems completely hopeless that Stanford would ever be fixed. But we have leadership that ought to care. Is there a model that a state university could use? Um, and specifically, I, I think, you know, we're both financial economists. You are I'm sort of a financial economist. Um, I keep going back to the good bank, bad bank model. Is that something we should sort of think about at a university? Uh, well, I'm not going to certify your view of Stanford, though I appreciate your uh, <laughs> unvarnished opinions. So, I mean, universities do have uh, methods of change. Now, we are starting to see people willing to stand up. I mean, we do, after all, have tenure. Now, granted, there's not that many faculty left. I was We started a free speech petition at Stanford, and I was grateful to see uh, 200 signatories. It was just... So Stanford's free speech policy is basically free speech so long as you don't insult anybody, so long as nobody feels hurt. Hmm, it's not really free speech. 200 uh, faculty members signed up and said, no, we need the University of Chicago principles. Sad part is 200 is not a large fraction of Stanford yeah, yeah. faculty. I mean, it's probably an order of magnitude more than I could get, but... Um... Uh, certainly, um, you know, from within, there are reasonable faculty who want, uh, who recognize the um, how hard this is. And, and more and more faculty are just scared to death of teaching. So even if it doesn't matter if you're a liberal, um, you you can one sneeze the wrong way and um, and and you can be uh, in in deep trouble. One one of my colleagues at the business school got into huge trouble because it turns out students were um, uh, totting where they were keeping track of who he called on in class and making lists of the particular intersectional categories of how many people got called on. And so a big eruption and complaints to the dean that he wasn't calling on the right people in the right orders. I, maybe classes need to be a little harder. Well, Stanford Business School doesn't have grades, which <laughs> might make people pay attention to more important things. But people are scared to death. So you know, back to the point. Um, even quite liberal faculty are 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 realizing that the the mob can come for them as well. So they are they are beginning to speak up. Now, as as you mentioned, the faculty has been so selected that uh, there's not that many and they're older <laughs> who, who view things this way, uh, but at least they're beginning to speak up. Now, universities have corrective mechanisms. A private university has a board of trustees and depends on donations. So uh, at, uh, we don't, well, you can't with a university buy up the stock, kick out the management, fire all these people and, and you know, do the sorts of things you do in a private company. But uh, there is a board of trustees and there are uh, donors. Uh, Stanford's donors, uh, they are people who've made a certain amount of money, which uh, <laughs> ten, tends to uh, correlate. Now, in some sense, as you mentioned, it correlates with, um, you know, these are very, uh, these are very high income luxury beliefs. 
So mm-hmm. they, uh, they do uh, have a certain amount of luxury beliefs, but they also are fairly sensible people. For the moment, they're not completely speaking up. Um, MIT's faculty signed a, you know, for the first time we saw faculty standing up and saying, no, this Twitter mob is crazy. Dorian Abbott should have been invited and, and stood up against the president administration for uh, caving in quickly. And MIT's alumni are organizing, we're not giving you a red cent while this craziness goes on. Um, so, uh, you know, those, those corrective mechanisms exist. Uh, now they need to wake up and start doing their jobs. If you are listening to this and you're an alumnus of these universities you sh- and you're giving a fair amount of money, you should call up your university president and say, I'm not giving a red cent until XYZ, and and we can discuss what XYZ needs to be. I struggle with this enormously because, you know, especially at Texas, where, you know, I know some of the people who give large amounts, I know who these people are. And it's like, I mean, I understand if you wanted to boycott a company that provides your food to, you know, avoid them doing something bad, that's, that's costly. But like, you know, $50 $50 million, you, you give $50 million to people who hate you, or you go buy a super yacht. Why is it hard to convince people to go buy super yachts instead of fund people who tell, you know, basically they're funding a, an attempt to tell everyone between the ages of 18 and 22 that the people giving the money are like evil. Why is this such a hard thing to convince people? I've never in understood. In your case too, you have a state legislature. Now the California state legislature is not, for example, the University of California, when you are hired as a faculty member, you must give a diversity statement. And in your job talk, you must uh, address diversity. And this is not about how much you believe in diversity. You have to uh, address your own personal commitment to the principles of the DEI office and what they will do. Your application is not even forwarded to the uh, department for scientific review if you do not pass the diversity bureaucracies tests about your allegiance to the diversity bureaucracy. And if you, if you say stuff like, oh, I like Martin Luther King, uh, you know, um, content of your character, not color of your skin, that's a disqualifying. disqualifying right? You're yeah. out. Now, I think they explicitly um, write that that's disqualifying. Somewhere. Yes. Yeah. In, in the rubric for, if you say, I treat all people equally, you're yeah. out. Uh, if you say, I have mentored a few minority and women students, you're out. Um, you, you know, in Berkeley's case, active participation in this DEI bureaucracy's programs that that, that gets been. Um, uh, now, back to the point, California state legislature is, is not going to get outraged about this, but Texas's state legislature, uh, you know, there's not a word of money. We, we put in this diversity, equity and inclusion policy, which got slightly tweaked because there were some documents leaked about how bad it was. And then they put this in, which is effectively, if you read it, and I've read it fairly carefully, it is in effect a conservative hiring ban. You have to demonstrate diversity skills, which means critical race theory, um, in order to get, and that counts for your job. And then the legislature meets and they fully fund everything at the university and throw tons of money at them. And then they carve off one tiny little spit, bit of money for, you know, dissenting thought. And then that gets canceled. And they're still like, they're all completely fine with this. <laughs> How do we end up here? So th- there are forces, there are equilibrating mechanisms still somewhat alive. And, um, you know, they need in the first case to have the courage to stand up and do something, which, you know, 
it, it is, it, it requires courage. Uh, people who, um, you know, Dorian Abbott, uh, for example, um, you know, wrote a Newsweek op-ed and uh, in, uh, saying he thought merit should have some role in, in hiring people. And uh, promptly, this is physics, <laughs> promptly, uh, physicists uh, started a Twitter campaign saying he must not be allowed to give a speech about uh, a climate on other planets uh, because he questioned, you know, he's, he's a good liberal, <laughs> because he questioned the standards of the DEI bureaucracy. Um, and so how is that just not he, fatal to like, the, people why don't we just stand up and say no, close some risk to themselves, and they are beginning to do so. Then uh, the then you know alumni's got to stand up. State legislators have to stand up and say no, and um, um, voters have to say to their state legis you know why do state legislators talk? They want to get reelected. <laughs> so um, you know um, I, I think we I hope we still live in a society that, that allows this sort of stuff. Although you know the larger that's why I'm, I'm the larger woke movement is a small, you know, no more than 20% of the electorate, but it's a profoundly undemocratic movement. And its goal is to take over the institutions of civil society and therefore in some sense seize power uh, and, and keep those annoying voters at bay. And universities are only part of this. Uh, philanthropies, you know, look, look at the Ford Foundation. Uh, <laughs> Philanthropies are entirely uh, taken over by the woke revolution. Uh, the government bureaucracies are pretty much taken over. The Federal Reserve is now headlong doing climate change, racism, and inequality. Um, and While failing at their one task. <laughs> Inflation? Oh, oh, well, what, what's going on? Oh, we weren't paying attention. Sorry. Right. Could have seen uh, that, that coming. Is, other that than is one of the ones that is is still sort of fighting. That's that's the direction uh, that the international institutions are going. So um, uh, that's why it's a, a, a dangerous. Uh, you know, when you have sort of a, a cult of this sort in charge of all the institutions of civil society, uh, that's that's politically dangerous. So universities are only they're the, the beginning and and one of the. Uh, parts of it. Now we still live in, you know, in a fairly open democracy. You are, unlike China, you are allowed to tweet and talk about your. You won't be sent to jail uh, for disagreeing. It just takes a little personal uh, courage. So I, I hope that these. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic. Actually, I, I hope that these the you know as with the red scare, the the um, the have you no decency moment is is coming. We'll see. But then you see. So I wonder about this. Like we are. Like I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to want to fire me for having this podcast. And I know there's a bunch of people who want to fire me for various other reasons, but I don't think they can because I have tenure. Oh, you, it's, it's <laughs> you can be fired. Tenure means nothing here. <laughs> well, not there, but like I'm in the fifth circuit. So they've actually been pretty good about that, but. Well, I don't know if, if they're, you know, um, somebody gets on Twitter and calls you a Nazi, uh, or if you can, if somebody records one thing you said in class that can be taken out of context to be hurtful to some group, good luck to you with your tenure. And you can have tenure, 
but you never need to have a raise ever again. Yeah, well, I've given up on that. Like, definitely not giving me, but I mean, I'm overpaid anyway. So, the teaching load can be ten classes. Your office can be in the third sub basement. Uh, you can be sanctioned a lot. You know, many uh, faculty, tenured faculty members, have been driven out of their jobs uh, by both the woke mob and the administrators. So don't don't count on on the same. Mm. So never mind about all that uh, criticism of the woke. I love them all, um, <laughs> but it, but like. There's some element when I, you know, when I was considering going into academia, one of the points was like, okay, you just have to keep your mouth shut for like five, six years. Then you get tenure and you can say whatever the hell you want. It didn't really work for me. I couldn't keep my mouth shut for the job market. I got like nasty letters sent to my advisor about that. But um, I got a job, I got tenure, and I started saying whatever the hell I want. Everyone else just seems to, you know, the fear is so palpable. Yeah, maybe if one or two of us stand up, but if everybody said anything, if every tenured faculty member said, no, these kids need to shut up, could they really do anything to all of us? And why are tenured faculty such worthless cowards? Well, you know, we got to face that indoctrination and selection works. If you throughout your, um, if, if in high school, in order to get into college, you were forced to say certain things and, and state certain beliefs. And then if you college in order to get grades, you were forced to say certain things and everybody around you in public always said the same pieties. And then as an assistant professor, uh, you had to, you know, say, oh, stand up and, and, and cheer the great Xi Jinping thoughts. Sorry, I meant the, uh, the woke, uh, read from the little red book of wokeism. And you got the feeling that everybody around you and all good thinking people feel the same way. To ask someone at age 35 to reveal their true uh, libertarian uh, free thinking instincts is asking a lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah, so, but in economics, we've sort of, I feel like we're a little, a little late to the party. Like we, we're getting this kind of takeover now, but we still, you know, there's still a handful of sensible people in economics departments, right? Um, maybe. Yes, but, but we are, economics, I think, is moving fast uh, to join the party. Yeah, and you 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 posted around on the American Economic Association website. <laughs> you will find some ins pretty dramatic instructions on how we are to think about not just racial issues but policy issues. Um, well, yeah, that was rather disturbing. You you posted uh, some of the stuff from the AEA about basically you know we have to be say it, it's pretty explicitly we need the following policies. Do your research so that you can support these policies, which is very much, you know, it seems like the AEA has kind of officially embraced the sort of action research, postmodern approach of like, we have our conclusions, there's no objective reality we can find, therefore, you know, your tool is, you know, regression, so make sure your regressions tell us that we need these policies, right? Like, how do well, you- it doesn't, it doesn't say that, but it in, there are statements that endorse specific pretty far left-wing policies. It doesn't say make sure to run your regressions this way, but I gather, so I don't do, um, my actual research is on monetary policy, which for the moment is uh, blissfully apolitical, um, but I gather from friends who do uh, climate economics, who do education, uh, who do um, a host of other issues, that it's very hard, it's harder and harder, or even minimum wages, it's harder and harder to get things published that um, that don't agree with the dominant narrative. So 
economics is is on its way. It's swinging pretty hard left. You know? And that does sort of render the entire exercise pointless, right? Like there's absolutely no reason to have like if the conclusion I've been trying to get my head around this, but like if we know you can only publish results that say one thing, the process from learning about research is this elaborate Bayesian updating of like, okay, what is the base rate of papers that say um, minimum wages are good if minimum wages are good versus what's the rate that you'll see minimum wages are good papers if minimum wages are bad. That seems like a very, very difficult, uh, I mean, in in an economic model, you you could unpack that and you could learn from the the sort of flow of papers what the truth is but that doesn't seem realistic so why would we still fund or you know why would society choose to have economics research if we've already reached the conclusion that that, that puzzles well, me unfortunately society as a whole pays remarkably little attention to economics research so <laughs> uh, maybe we're okay that way although uh there is, you know, the research is where we think about ideas and then public policy pronouncing. Our, our society needs a, a, a bookshelf of good ideas to turn to when in trouble. And increasingly, uh, we have fantasies that we turn to when, when in trouble. Uh, you know, research is where policy policy people get their, their constellation of ideas. No, it's not as bad, you know, climate research. Uh, I, I know from people who do there, you know, if, if you are coming up with the wrong answers, uh, good luck getting funding. And there, you know, we can just sit and do our stuff with a computer and free time. Uh, there, you know, you, you need actual money to get things going. Um, apparently, uh, I had a nice interview with Steve Coonan a while ago, and, and I asked him, so he had all sorts of graphs about what's actually going on in the climate. I said, wait, how'd these get published? I said, it's very easy. You put the actual facts in the paper and then you put the introduction and conclusion and say catastrophe, catastrophe, and you can get anything because <laughs> no one reads the actual center of the paper. I mean, this is really where we are. Uh, there's a lot of claims of hyperbole, but this really is where we are. Like you, you, you have to reach a certain conclusion to get that. Uh, For the moment in economics, it helps to reach the certain conclusion. You're just held... Uh, contrarians are held to much higher standards and contrarians are, are ignored. I mean, this is one of the many parts of our replication crisis is that, you know, when you, when you destroy a, a positive narrative paper, no one pays any attention to it. Uh, but we're, we're, it's still possible. But I think, I mean, are you, you're, I assume, familiar with what happened to Roland Fryer, right? Yes. You know, he had a contrarian result and then lo and behold all sorts of allegations about personal misbehavior cropped up that's a that that seems like a bit of a canary in the coal mine for our profession that you know well he made the the uh, the great sin of of uh, being black and coming up with the wrong answer which is uh, even more hated uh, there's nothing more hated than a black conservative ask condy rice and tom soul and glenn lowry uh in fact, one of the AEA things that, that really annoyed me was uh, they have a statement on, on race and, you know, how we, we ought to think about, all of us ought to think about racism and how to, you know, with better racism. But the AEA's recommended reading list, which is now being used uh, in, in uh, we haven't talked about mandated reading lists, but that's being used. The AEA's reading list includes Ibrahim X. Kendi and does not include Tom Sowell, Glenn Lowry, Roland Fryer, uh, actual economists who uh, happen to come up with the wrong answers. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, so the, the, that is 
this sort of compelled speech and compelled study seems to be an issue. Like more, you know, it seems to be getting harder and harder to get through a profession without being forced to do certain things. It's not even that you can't say what you want. You really just literally have to like go along with this stuff, right? I mean, well, it depends where. I mean, again, things that are more competitive tend to work out. You know, journals. If the American Economic Association wants to go hard left, well, they you know the American Economic Review won't always be the number one. Uh, certainly, if if uh, lower ranked universities started reading papers rather than counting publications, uh, they would go. But you know, if you can't publish in the AER, well, publish in the Review of Economic Dynamics, <laughs> uh, publish in the Journal of Political Economy. There, there's some. Uh, competition can still do a little bit of its uh, work there. But on the student side, I think, I don't know about where you are, but where I am, I don't think you can get through without parroting this stuff, right? Like, yeah, and th so at Tech, how does that work out at Texas? At Stanford, uh, our, uh, you know, one of the things to be done, if you don't like as a faculty member, is to take back the admissions process. Mm -hmm. uh, we have another thing that has been devolved to a whole bureaucracy is admissions, which goes off on whatever flight of fancy they have in mind about who wants to get let in uh, at the moment. And, and there's, there's uh, they are still allowing conservative students if uh, to maybe these guys are, are hiding to get in. Um, Texas must allow in a much broader range, an ideologically broader range of students. I mean, because you're like people from Texas. Well, we have uh, most of our admissions is automatic based on your high school rank. So that there was this trick they did when affirmative action was briefly off the table. And so they put in this rule that said the top X percent from every college or from every high school in Texas gets in automatically and they didn't calibrate it very well. So that basically took up the entire class. And then what this has resulted in is like people from rural Texas can get into UT Austin, even though the administration at UT Austin obviously doesn't want those people around. So we do have a little bit of. But that also means your admissions office uh, can't say, well, we need to see your work for nonprofits, uh, you know. So they, they spend all I think they spend a lot of energy on that. They were really into basically. We want to see you take a junket for rich kids to Guatemala to go build housing for you know the poor people before. We or left. to go to Guatemala and harass a New York Times reporter out of his job. But but Texas, you, you, so the student body has. Why is the student body putting up with this stuff? Um, given well, they have to. I mean, we've created a lot of. There's a lot of requirements that so the state creates all these requirements. And then like the government class is required, but then you capture the government class and it becomes you know, the critical race theory class. Then they came up with this idea to have flags. So, you know, extra requirements that uh, you to avoid people taking classes at community colleges. And then all those boards were captured by people who, you know, they'll only give the flags if you sort of parrot the kind of critical race theory, critical theory stuff. Like we have two diversity flags, one of which specifically says you can qualify for this flag by having an activism project in your course. And then the ethics flag of all things, I was on the, you know, you basically need critical theory in your ethics classes. And I got on that committee to try to push back a little bit and they expelled me from the committee. So, you know, they have all these ways to make sure the students come through, even the like people from West Texas always have to say, 
I accept these ideas before they graduate, as far as I can tell. So, so, but, but, so students are scared to speak out. I mean, that is one. Oh, of, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. That's the communication I've gotten. It's like, yeah, you can't say anything. We've uh, had uh, a number of interesting cases. Uh, Trent Colbert at Yale, uh, Ben Bidejo at, at Harvard. Now, these are fancy law schools, uh, but these are cases that come up where the administrators have really gone after students um, and tried to ruin their, their lives and their careers. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing where I think like describing Maoism as hyperbole is, that's where I put it, you know, they really are at those law schools definitely trying to like ruin these people's lives forever, right? Yeah, that's, it's, but let's not be hyperbolic. They're not being sent to re-education camps in the countryside and they are not. But that's really only starved. an issue of what they can do versus what they would do, right? <laughs> let's, let's, not, uh, let's not hyperbolize. I mean, it, 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 like, it is notable that a number of schools like Northwestern and University of Illinois, Chicago, actually hired people who were explicitly, especially in education schools, like being a member of a terrorist group in the United States in the 60s sort of qualified you to be a faculty member, right? I mean, you're... Right. So, I mean, our education schools actually hired people who set bombs off. So, no, and, and actually in the uh, when you look at what goes on in education schools, they're, they're very smart about this. And, uh, you know, we, we can use our totalitarian analogies. Well, what, one of the things that they did is the first thing they take over is the schools. <laughs> right. And, uh, and uh, our, our woke movement was very smart. The first thing they took over actually was the education schools. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, you know, anybody coming into college has survived um, 12 years of, of this kind of indoctrination. Now, you know, again, uh, the, the pandemic uh, was a good corrective. A lot of parents have been listening on Zoom mm -hmm. uh, about what their children are actually learning. And, and I think the uh, election in Virginia, governor's election in Virginia was basically uh, angry parents saying what the hell's going on, which isn't just about too much critical race theory. It's also about not enough math. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's this um, idea that really math is somehow that's going on in our education system is uh, getting rid of, uh, you know, math is math is now racist. Uh, really? And math's not racist in China. <laughs> or, you know, Iran, where they came up with a lot of it. Right. Um, yeah, I will say we did, we did have a little kerfuffle recently. There was a $100,000 grant that the central administration at UT provided for the education school to develop critical race theory programs for preschoolers. So uh, apparently 12 years is not enough. They're, they're going for the four-year-olds now. So, yeah. Now a requirement in California public schools for to take a... Uh quarter on, uh, on, it's called ethnic studies, but it includes as a requirement, activism. <laughs> you yeah. are required to learn something, you are required to go out and, and activate for a, a cause. Hmm. Yeah, we have, we have activism as a way to qualify that flag. And I've noticed this term that's cropped up, action research. Have you seen this term? Yeah, this is a, a, a deeply troubling, I, I view us as scholars <laughs> and our primary purpose in education should be to open people's minds to learn about the world. And um, increasingly, you know, universities are selecting, they want, what, what does it take to get into college? Well, you've been Greta Thunberg, you've been activating for a cause. 
uh, as if you know everything were clear and simple and all the answers were there and all there are is the good people and the bad people and the bad people need to be crushed. And at 16, uh, everybody knows what the right answers are and, and your job is to go activate. Uh, I think that's an entirely backwards and, and more and more of universities are doing this. Uh, Stanford is starting a new school of sustainability and uh, uh, included in this school of sustainability is a, a large, um, you know, bring ideas to action uh, component. Uh, in fact, part of the debate was whether you can get tenure for your, uh, for your opt-eds and activism as opposed to just your publications. Yeah, and uh, so and back to the free speech question. It seems a little like, do we really you know should should state funding of political activism count as free speech at a university, or should we be able to say that you no, know, the board of regents should come in and say you can't use our money to engage in political activism? Can we draw a line between what's actual research and what's political activism? Well, you've, you've drawn it. So one of the large rots in uh, American government overall is the extent of tax money that is being used to uh, fund political activity. Uh, universities are, you know, uh, are, are, they get a lot of money from the government and a lot of it is used to advance one way or another uh, political activity, not just supporting candidates, although universities are increasingly supporting specific candidates. Oh yeah, we, we've hired Beto at UT Austin, Beto O'Rourke, so that he can have a place to run for governor from. And, <laughs> and supporting policies that, you know, are, are entirely, um, you know, one political parties versus another. But, you know, we unions uh, are largely ways of, of funneling protected money into one political party. I don't think I mean, a lot of the, the sort of fines around the financial crisis seem to have been funneled into community organizations to do things like that. That was a, you know, when we're talking about the Fed, uh, I, I looked this one up. Uh, there was fines for um, robo-signing mortgages and the Fed deciding that this was a safety and stability issue told the banks to give money to community organizations, which were political activism. Now that one's small on the scale of the rest of what's going on. Uh, nonprofits are increasingly, you know, private nonprofits are more and more uh, clearly uh, political. And, and uh, you know, medical journals are issuing op-eds about how you should vote in presidential elections. How do you keep your 501c3 status when you're doing that kind of stuff? Anyway, so we we are a small part of a of a no, you know, that's that's where the money is. But um, this seems like a distinction that's important to make. Like we need to, you know, if we have state power, we need to use state power to prevent that stuff, which is very different than using state power to actually tell someone they cannot express an opinion. And my sense is on the right, there's a People aren't really willing to draw that line and get very allergic to the use of state power for, you know, any of this. That's right? where I get. Yep. So maybe we ought to kind of draw those distinctions a little more carefully. Okay. Well, uh, running out of time. So thanks very much, John. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about. It's been a pleasure. Good, this good luck and, with the podcast. Good luck with your uh, courageous. Uh, effort to bring some measure of freedom of speech, thought, expression, inquiry we'll see. Uh, back to your university.
plenty of windmills to tilt at. <laughs> yeah. no, good, good luck or, organizing good people of all political persuasions who care about the actual truth and and actual science and actual uh, freedom and actual opportunities uh, for people on the lower ends of things. I, I, we didn't get into how destructive this is for uh, people from poor backgrounds or minorities, but um, it's yeah. so it destructive of the people that it ostensibly wants to help. I, so I, I do wonder if my, my, there's this idea, just one more, there's this idea of this tension between the the desire to help marginalized people and the desire for free expression. And I think Eric Kaufman views this as kind of the core trade-off. My experience, and this is probably something you're gonna want me to edit out, um, is that uh, when I talk to academics of, of that persuasion, it seems like the, the sort of, to the extent that they care about marginalized people at all, it's just as a convenient cudgel to go after the people they really genuinely hate. like the. The hatred for the sort of you know, regular working class Americans seems to trump any of the actual concern for what happens in you know, poor communities that get depoliced because, you know, oh, here's a great opportunity to attack some people we don't like. And the surveys suggest that the, 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 like, you know, our type of people have really negative views towards you know, that type of people. So I don't know. Is, is there actual concern for the marginalized people or is it really just that type of hate. I don't know. Well, there may, there may be concern, but there is certainly a um, complete flight away from cause and effect thinking about what actually uh, helps. And there, there's a lot of sort of white savior uh, psychology going on in here. Uh, you know, if you simply uh, let them have jobs and opportunities, then you wouldn't be in charge of getting sure. them. Stuff. In fact, that's a lot of the, you know, the idea that that what some poor black kid in, in a bad neighborhood needs is for you to go home, put on a hair shirt and read Ibrahim X. Kendi uh, is, is just laughable. He, he needs a job and he needs a halfway decent education, which actually teaches some math. And uh, we kind of know how to do that. We don't. <laughs> if we actually cared. Yeah. Okay. Well, well anyway, I was congratulating you on your on your uh, on your efforts. This is, I think, we are at the moment where um, more and more where there's a network. More and more people are are going to stand up and say, "No, this enough. Let's get back to uh, freedom, equality, <laughs> opportunity, America." Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> this is one where I really hope you're right. And I'm wrong. So, thank you very much, John. You're welcome. Good to talk to you.